Check one. Check. Check one. Check. Check. Check one. Check one, check, check, check. Check, check one, check. After this sermon, yeah. So you're never going to sit down today. No. That's.
It is indeed good to come into the presence of our God. Brothers and sisters, we're about to go on a journey, buckle in, as I told Mark earlier today. I've spent a lot of weeks living in Psalm 34. It's one of the advantages of not having to preach every Sunday. You get to spend a lot of time. I've journeyed deep, and I, I pray that the Lord lets me give you a small portion of what he's given me. Let's go to the Lord in prayer first. Lord, today let us taste and see of your goodness. Lord, help us again. Touch, taste, and feel, and smell the goodness of you, our Lord. Remind us of your past goodness to us. Give us confidence in your future goodness, no matter what comes. Help us, Lord, truly have good days and a great life. In your name, amen. Well, I, I told you I'm going to give you a little overview of the journey. Here's what we're going to go through. This psalm starts with a call to praise. It starts with a call to join the psalmist in praise. 
I've capitalized these words on purpose. Come, glorify the Lord with me. And then it goes to his personal testimony of deliverance. You can read what that was. I think it's important that he didn't tell us exactly what that was. But he delivered me, and then he turns it right around and he says, and he, this can be yours. He can deliver you. And then we turn to a saving presence of God. I know that my Lord saves. And then the center of this psalm is really living in the fear of the Lord. That's the apex. That's the point that he's working towards. And last, it's your rescue and your refuge in Jesus. So let's, let's go in. How many of us would like to have a great life? You want to have a great life, right? I listened to a song by B.B. King the other day. It's called, Let the Good Times Roll. Uh, that's not what we're talking about here. But we want good days, right? A.J. knows that song. And that is where our culture takes us, right? Those good times. But I want to challenge you. We're going to go all the way back to 1 Peter 3. Peter quotes this psalm in 1 Peter 3, verses 10 through 12. He says, Forever, for whomever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil and their lips from deceitful speech. They must turn from evil and do good. They must seek peace and pursue it, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. I remind you of the premise of 1 Peter. (laughs) Part of the premise, if I can summarize it, is, you think this is bad, it's going to get worse. (laughs) It's an odd psalm to quote. This was spoken to followers of Christ who are about to suffer on a, on a level that we've never experienced. Why did Peter quote this psalm? He quoted it to give us the example of our suffering servant that you just heard from Isaiah 53. Jesus Christ suffered and yet was blessed and lived a great life and had good days. So we can learn a lot from this psalm. We can learn a lot about loving life and having good days and yet a life with enduring, lasting staying power. So I encourage you to have your Bible open. I'm not going to directly quote through this sermon, but I'm going to touch on most of these verses. The first part of this psalm, come, glorify the Lord with me. He starts with a phrase, extol. I will extol, it's a verb. It means to praise enthusiastically. It's not some intellectual, theoretical exercise. It's deep, enthusiastic, from your gut, praise of God. David was not an unemotional man. His faith was lived out in everything he did. Here's some synonyms for extol. I got this from a Bible dictionary. It gets a little over the top, you think. 
praise enthusiastically, go into raptures over, wax lyrical about, sing the praises of, of, of praise to the skies, acclaim, exalt, eulogize, adulate, rhapsodize over. And last but not least, I love this one, rave about. It sounds like when you're in love, right? It's not this, oh, praise God. It is praise God from every depth of my being. Brothers and sisters, when, I, when David asks us to praise, this is what he's asking for. It's not praising in the desert. It's praising out of the overflow of our hearts to God. But wait. He goes on to invite some people to praise. Who are these people? Well, they're the ones who are having a good time. They're the ones who are just rolling in the dough. The good life. But wait. No. He invites people who are burdened and afflicted. Let those who are afflicted hear and rejoice. If there's ever a cross-cultural message, this praising God and glorifying Him is like that. He invites them to united praise of the Holy One. I got this from the Treasury of David by C.H. Spurgeon. I highly recommend it. I downloaded the, I found one of my dad's copies and then I downloaded the whole thing. It's free. It's an amazing dive into the Psalms by C.H. Spurgeon. Here's just some of his. We may boast of the Lord in himself, in the manifestations of himself, in his relationship to us, in our interest in him and our expectations from him. It's the duty of believers to relate their experience for the benefit of others. Praise is evangelical. Come on, let's exalt his name together. Come, listen to me, I'm gonna tell you about him. He's my Lord. He's amazing. He's the goat. For those of you who don't know what the goat is, it's not an animal. It stands for the greatest of all time. And we talk about football players for Pete's sake. He's the greatest of all time. David turns from this exultant prayer to deliverance. I love these verses. In verse 4, he says, it's a real quick testimony of praise. I sought the Lord, he answered me, and he delivered me. Pretty simple. I called out to him, he, answered, he heard me, he answered me, and he took care of it. He delivered me. And then he makes it even a little more personal. In verse 6, this poor man called. The Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. Now let's review. He is saying, this is what had happened, and this is what the Lord did. That's my experience. And then he turns it around 
especially in verse 5. And he says, essentially, this can be your experience. He generalizes it. Again, from C.H. Spurgeon, this is a confession, this is a testimony, this is a witness of a soul ransomed by Christ. It's very simple. It has three points. It honors God. It excludes any self-merit. Notice that? There is nothing. He says, I did this. Other than calling. And it encourages all others to seek God. Now he witnesses others' deliverance. It's not just enough to talk about his own. He's now going to say, and my friend... My friend Mark and my friend Ross and and my daughter Megan have all experienced the deliverance. And he gives a general observation of life. Those who look to him are radiant. Let's stop right there. They're radiant. This was a a simile. I don't remember if it was a simile or a metaphor. We'll go with simile. Of Moses. Moses went into the presence of God, and his face was radiant. His face reflected, absorbed glory. The glory of the Lord reflects off of them. Those who look to him are radiant. And then it says their faces are never covered with shame. That doesn't resonate very well with us. However, if you're in an Asian culture, you, if you've ever been in an Asian culture, you will see this. Um, I've seen it in CEOs in Japan that I've watched on TV absolving themselves of guilt or or confessing guilt, and their face is shameful. Why does he say this, that their faces are never covered with shame? Because they can always trust on the Lord coming through. He will deliver me. And I will never have to say, well, he didn't come through. Well, well, he's not really that powerful. Their faces are never covered with shame. Then he talks about protection and deliverance. Hear this with all your heart. There's a phrase in this verse that says, the angel of the Lord I've read so much on this psalm and other commentators, and nearly everyone sees the same thing in that phrase. The angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ coming to this earth. The angel of the Lord is that presence of Christ that was there just before, before Sodom was destroyed. There's so many testimonies of that pre-existent Christ being here in a bodily form. The angel of the Lord, Adonai himself, encamps around those who fear him. I love that word, encamps. Encamps means he's all around them. He, he's around them, above them, everywhere. He encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. So now we have come all the way through deliverance, and we've come through our testimony of deliverance. And now, David talks about what the Lord ultimately does. He says, I know that the Lord saves. 
Well, here's a problem in this psalm, or at least a perceived problem. In verse 6, it touched on it a little bit. He saves him out of all of his troubles. He delivers them. It says in verse 9, those who fear him lack nothing. Are we saved from all trouble? Well, there's suffering, sickness, there's death, disease. It's all here. How can David be so certain the Lord is going to deliver him and save him from all trouble? Did God deliver David from all the troubles? No, this poor man was wandering about the nation of Israel with his son trying to kill him. He was exposed to trouble, 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 even from members of his own family. But that's not a problem with this psalm. David addresses this psalm to those who are afflicted, those who are suffering. And Peter, in case we missed it, Peter confirms it, but it's applied to those of us who suffer for doing good. And our Savior was not delivered from suffering and affliction. He certainly did good and not evil, right? What's this deliverance from? Brothers and sisters, it is so good today that we are having this psalm on Communion Sunday. This phrase, taste and see that the Lord is good, is David. David often talks of the sweetness of honey, sweeter than honey, even from the honeycomb right out of the source. And he says, taste and see. As a child, I was usually hungry by the time this meal came, and I wanted some of it. And I remember smelling the bread and the wine. Well, this is grape juice. I'm in a Baptist church. And I remember waiting to drink it and smelling that grape juice. David is very tactile. He uses all of his senses, and he says on a very gut level, I guess really a gut level, taste, see, and in my case, smell, that the Lord is good. Stop right there. You, you are going to experience the Lord's Supper today. You are going to remember him. Taste and see his goodness. So then he says, happy, that's blessed. To be envied is the one who trusts and takes refuge in him. Refuge? Refuge from what? Well, obviously, you've got to have refuge from something. What's from those troubles? And then he says, those who fear the Lord lack no good thing. There is no want in their life. There is no emptiness. Those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Their deliverance is ultimate. They are delivered from eternal damnation. This good thing makes all those other good times like nothing. This good thing is the ultimate good thing. So then, this next part is, as I told you at the beginning, is the, it's the apex, the point we've been working towards. So how do you get there? 
Well, you got to work a lot. No. But he does give us the sense that we must live in something. Verse 11 is where I am. He says, listen, my children, and I will teach you the fear of the Lord. Read a lot about the fear of the Lord. Try to distill it for you. It's a sense of awe and deep reverence for God's majesty in his very being. It involves a posture of adoration. There's there's also an element of the knowledge that God is frightening. It is a frightful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Hebrews 10.31. Don't forget that. That's part of it. R.C. Sproul says, As sinful people, we have every reason to fear God's judgment. It is part of our motivation to be reconciled with God. Amen? The fear of the Lord is reverence and awe, in my definition, resulting in a life-lived worship of the Lord. He tells us a little more. I believe this is verse 12. That we fear Him as His holy people. This is the fear of the Lord. It is holiness. We are to turn from evil. Keep your tongue from evil. Your lips from telling lies. And you are to turn away from, repent from evil. You're to have a posture of repentance. Vern talked last week about taking out the garbage. I've used that this week a lot in my life. Kept taking out the garbage. Man, there's a lot of garbage. And then he says what you must turn to. You must turn good, turn to good. You must seek peace. He says pursue, strive after, seek after peace. So to receive the goodness of God, we must live in this fear of the Lord. And that fear of the Lord in turn turns us to holiness. How does this saving work? Well, he says, the Lord, the righteous cry out. The Lord hears them and delivers them from all their troubles. There it is again. Perfect. No troubles. But verse 18 says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and he looks over them. His eyes are on them. And those who are crushed in spirit. Doesn't sound like no troubles. In fact, this is very close to the Beatitudes of Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit, those who are broken and contrite of their own sin. He saves them. And in fact, he says, righteous people will have many troubles. But the Lord will deliver them from them all. I heard a story about this last week about a Catholic priest who is a chaplain in Korea, and I'm going to share this with you to give you an example of rescue and refuge. 
This Catholic priest is a Medal of Honor recipient posthumously. They just identified his remains. Uh, the, the Department of Defense constantly uses DNA to identify remains. This priest was a, a great comfort to the troops when they were in Korea. In a battle, um, a number of troops were caught in a crossfire, and they were wounded. And so this priest ran out and brought them back. So that's rescue, right? He went out, he grabbed them, over almost a dozen. He grabbed them and he brought them back. Okay, that's rescue. But rescue in the middle of a battle won't do you any good if it's only temporary. He brought them back to a refuge. The refuge was behind the guns of their fellow troops. And he dropped them and he went and got another one. Rescue, refuge, rescue, refuge. That's you and me. That is rescue and refuge. Jesus rescued us from our sin and he brought us to refuge. David says he has sought refuge. Refuge means that you find your complete and final, hear that word, final, safekeeping in him. It is in God where our souls are at absolute peace and rest. Why should I seek refuge? Well, if you hadn't noticed, we live in a sin-filled, corrupt, filthy world. The world is wrecked by sin, and I'm part of it. I'm broken. You're broken. I'm burdened by my own sin. So we match God's promises with that reality. The true happiness of the godly comes in our nearness to God. And in a life lived in that experience of His help, but not in an experience of being spared suffering and affliction. On the contrary, our suffering is an essential part of the life of the righteous. Only those who are broken and crushed in spirit will experience truly the nearness of God. What His help can really mean. Remember, God does not forsake the godly forever, but he preserves them from utter despair and complete destruction. In fact, in verse 20, it is a prophecy of Jesus Christ himself. Not one of his bones will be broken. It is the blessed experience of the presence of God and our communion with him. That communion is granted to us even at the very hour and place of our suffering. I'm indebted to Arthur Weiser, who's a German theologian for that. 
brothers and sisters. Come, glorify the Lord with me. He has delivered me. He will deliver you. And I know that my Lord saves. I challenge you to live in the fear of the Lord because ultimately your rescue and your refuge is in our Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you indeed that you have given us our refuge and our rescue in you. Thank you that you are the one who delivers us. And oh God, as we come to our remembrance of you and our deliverance of you, remind us again that we should taste and see you indeed are good. As we remember your body and your blood broken and shed for us. Amen.